Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Ben Zaniello. He is the Chief Medical Officer for Point Click Care. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Excited to be here. So if you would, uh, tell us a little bit about your history and how you got to this point. Um, you're a, an infectious disease doctor, which, you know, uh, I'm going to say in the last three years was probably pretty relevant and uh, important, and you were maybe a little bit busy with some of that, but you've done a whole range of other things, and it's always helpful to get a bit of context about the individual that we're talking to. So uh, tell us tell us your story. Probably unusually, compared to maybe a lot of other docs that spend time in technology, I actually did technology first. I graduated Stanford in the rational exuberance of the 90s, and went straight into technology, decided it wasn't entirely as socially aligned. I was essentially helping people either sell or create faster widgets and went into medicine. And after 12 plus years of medical training, fellowship, et cetera, I viewed healthcare tech as a good opportunity to align my technology background and my, at that point, current passion for medicine. Um, it's again, a, a lot of medicine is about doing things at scale. I think most physicians, and I'm certainly a practicing physician, I see patients every week. I love that individual relationship, but the opportunity to do it at scale is a really big part of healthcare tech. In other words, not what I can do for this patient, but what I can do for a population. So I went kind of back into technology while just seeing patients uh, part-time a little over 10 years ago and mostly have not looked back. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. I, I, I would say that I had a similar sort of experience, but I didn't start in technology, um, certainly in college or you know qualifications. My journey through that was through school through the original sort of concepts of technology, I could see this as a, a clear pathway, but medicine was what I wanted to do. And then I just became frustrated with the fact that nobody was talking technology. In fact, I carried around a little portable device. And the biggest mistake I made was that I, one of my patients made a little um, holster for it to make it portable. And I should have patented the holster. Forget the technology, because I'd have made a lot of money with all these clip-on things that people had. <laughs> Um, I mean, Nick, Nick, I was going to go in a totally different direction with that, which I thought you were going to say your biggest mistake was walking around the hospital with a holster. Oh, no, I was very proud it. of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was uh, I was known as, you know, that weird guy that had a brick clipped to his side. And it was a two-line LCD screen with an ABC keyboard and uh, 16K of memory plug in. <laughs> But I used it. It was very effective. It was fantastic. But that launched me on my career. So I, I see that blending of the two worlds. And, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of ownership here. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts about it. I contributed to the morass of electronic medical records. I implemented some of the very early versions of this. And I think we 
brilliantly decided that we were going to take the paper record and create a digital version, which was, of course, the right thing to do, right? Yeah, and also, since we're we're being up front here, so did I in the sense of having a technology background and then moving through the long and painful pre-medical, medical school, residency, and fellowship. I actually helped implement, in most cases, EPIC at all of those institutions because I was either a practicing physician or a med student and new technology and could explain it to others. So I got sucked into that. Now, I would like to think that I was the low person on the totem pole and I was just doing what I was told as a trained medical student fellow. So I really actually more blame you, but I, right. I, 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 was, I was part of the system. I was absolutely part of that. I, I'm going to take even more ownership. I, I, I just it was a, a horrendous mistake to actually automate what we had on paper and produce a digital version. It, it just it did not work. And of course, much like the the move in technology, oh, we've got digital, you know, we're going we're getting rid of paper. Uh, hello, have you seen these printers? The high volume. It, it was the complete reverse. And I think we did the same with electronic medical records. We didn't really solve problems. And I know you've been knee deep in that. Tell us a, a little bit about your history through that process and where you see us in terms of the electronic medical record. Sure. I think it's kind of widely known today that most providers, physicians particularly, but also nurse and med techs, spend more time staring at a screen than they do actually practicing care. There's been many studies on this, and each is more depressing than the last that in a patient, typical patient encounter, the doctor is trying to, in that 20-minute allocated patient time that probably started late and also involved seven other screening questions, now also includes having to capture all the data from the encounter to create a bill. Uh, and so they're sitting at the screen. They're not actually looking at their patient. Very few people can type and create a um, articulate note while staring at a patient. This is a huge bummer, right? It's been a huge bummer for providers. It's an even bigger bummer for patients. I mean, again, the practice of care is not always so much a complicated diagnosis or even a miracle treatment. It's really understanding where your patients are coming from, hearing their stories, and then often providing them the reassurance that it's not necessarily a Political diagnosis for which they need 17 pills, it's often a reassurance that what they're going through, mental, behavioral health, physical or otherwise, will probably resolve on its own. But listening for the gotchas to ensure that your patient has a healthy, happy life and that you also retain your license. Again, this has all been undermined because I'm spending the entire time staring at the screen. One shift we're seeing, and again, a little bit about that move from to electronic medical records is how can we automate some of these tasks? So a lot of the things, uh, the screening questions, for example, that everybody is still presented with when they walk into an office, here's a piece of paper, go through these check marks. Okay, can we capture this in an automatic fashion on an iPad, have that automatically go into the medical chart and anything that's a, yes, I am waking up in the middle of the night coughing blood, that actually gets relayed to the provider so that they can have a specific interaction about it. So there's a step there. And then the other piece is just the workflow part, which is 
creating a streamlined system where as the patient kind of moves through the encounter, the medical record is moving with you. It's pulling up the right data. It's putting it in the right place. All these things need to happen or else we're going to see what we are seeing today, which is really unhappy providers, docs that say, I went into this profession to help people. And really, I'm just a glorified typist. Yeah, and and that's really, you know, such a core problem because you and I both went to medical school to see patients, not to see technology, even though we're both geeks, clearly. I'm just going to call you that because you sound like one. I'm just, uh, but there we are. You know, there's value to all of this. I mean, I saw the value. I carried around this ridiculous device that uh, you've called me out for now, but um, I, I used it and I could see, but it wasn't the focal point. It was not where I spent my, or at least where I wanted to. And I didn't have to in those days, to be clear. It was, you know, centered around paper. And, you know, we still, we had personal connections. We've removed all of that. And the other thing that's happened, and I think, you, you know, you've certainly got some perspective on this, is this massive increase. And I'm going to call it data, but I'm not sure that's even giving it the best term here. It's certainly not knowledge. It's, it's just data on patients and associated facts around their stay, perhaps. We're, we're overwhelming the clinicians in that experience. How on earth are we going to fix this? I mean, it just it's getting worse. We're getting more and more of this information. I just want to clarify something very quickly, however. There is probably a gradient to how much of a geek you are, and people that wear stuff around their belt are certainly higher than me. I just, I just, sorry. Oh, hold now. on a second. So, You're calling me more geeky just because I had a clipper? Oh, please. Not just me, Nick. Not just me. Um, <laughs> So the data thing's really interesting to me, and it's, again, careful what you wish for. So a huge part of my career, let's say in the last five or six years, has been focused on this buzzword of interoperability, right? It's this idea that we've created these silo health systems that are not exchanging data with each other. I practiced in Seattle. Seattle has three big health systems, Virginia Mason, University of Washington, and Providence. They have hospitals within a half mile of each other on First Hill called Pill Hill. Patients would just move between the three, sometimes with bad intentions, but also sometimes with good intentions. That ER is crowded. I'm not getting care there. I'm going to go there because I'm going to be seen faster. There was no exchange of data between those three hospitals. So my, I, I was the CMIO at one of those uh, um, health systems, and my goal was how do I make it so health systems are sharing data, not to mention the rest of the care continuum. So the post-acute, the skilled nursing facility you discharge a patient to, the clinic that is going to catch a patient when you discharge them from the ED. So we both have the intro problem of health systems not sharing data, but then all these other entities on the care continuum also need access and visibility into this data. So we spent a lot of time building pipes right? Working with the big EMR uh, manufacturers, including the one I work for, Point Click Care, but also Epic and Cerner and others, to get the data out there. Well, this is a, a little bit of a careful what you wish for, or, you know, the, the quote, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink, right? We've got all this data now. Now, um, Epic provides, everybody talks about care everywhere, and I can click over a couple of tabs when I'm seeing one of my patients and see 
everything that patient has done at every other health system on Epic, mostly limited to Epic, but a lot of health systems are in Epic. Well, guess what? It has everything they've done in an Epic system. So going through that data, the word I like to use is spelunk because it's like you've got a flashlight and you are desperate to find the kind of gold ore in that mine. The one salient piece of data in that just morass of data that care everywhere and these systems now have is virtually impossible. You, I'm an infectious disease doc, like part of my job when I am called as a consultant is to splunk in the EMR to find out what are all the bugs that someone has had, what are all the drugs that they have been on, uh, and encapsulate that and come up with a narrative. That's my job. In ER medicine, you have a short period of time to rapidly triage a patient. You can't go over to a third party, a portal, a healthcare information exchange, and look through all that data to find, well, first of all, is there something there, right? You don't even know the answer to that question. But if you go over, is anything relevant to your care? And that's a little bit the new problem. I mean, there's actually been some great governmental work on this. We have TESCA, we have information blocking rules, all these things to free the data. And if you and I talked five years ago, I would just keep repeating, free the data, free the data, let's force, cajole, carrot, stick, everybody into freeing the data. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, we have so much data and now people are throwing in what's coming off their Apple Watch and all the uh, all the Internet of Things, right? Now we have too much data. It's how do I actually make that data informative and actionable for patients, but also the providers themselves? So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today I'm talking to Ben Zaniello. He's the chief medical officer for Point Click Care. Uh, I was just uh, taken aback for a second because uh, right here on this show, for the first time, we had the rhyme of the ancient mariner included. Uh, that was Samuel Taylor Coleridge, I'll just tell you. And uh, gosh, if you can cast your mind that far back into your uh, uh, English, I guess it was uh, that we uh, we learned that. The uh, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. It's uh, extraordinary that that's... Uh, it's taken this long to come up in my podcast, but Ben, you did it. So thank you for that. And I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, you you get the Geek Award for the uh, spelunking in, um, in these EMRs to identify that information, because uh, I, I think that's exactly the, the, the task is that you're attempting to do is to identify and get in there. And of course, the question is, is there any valuable information um, we don't know, but we've got some new tools and, you know, I'm almost hesitant to say, hey, I've got an answer to the technical problem that we created with some new technology, but let's go there for a second and say, is there some scope to actually automate some of this and start to surface in a, a, a I'm going to call it safe way because, you, you, hidden in there was something that I know as an ID doc, you, you, you're always thinking about the zebras, right? The, the unusuals. And it's the same in emergency medicine. Can we do it and, and still 
include the zebras and you know because if you surface all the data and say this is it that's what people look at did we miss something important how do we how do you think about that yeah this is when i get to use whatever buzzword of the moment which again years ago we would have like probably talked about machine learning or neural networks and of of course what we're talking about these days is artificial intelligence like any doc, I a little bit throw my hands up and, you know, with fear and say, what is AI going to do to my job, right? Uh, it seems like it's incredibly capable of re uh, writing my 16-year-old's uh, college essays. Um, I should say his application essays. He's not a Doogie Hauser. He's still firmly in high school. Uh, I was a Doogie Hauser, but go on. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Okay. Just checking. Um, I, again, back to the the, the holstered uh, device. This doesn't surprise anyone. But I, I, I'm, I'm incredibly excited. What can I say? I'm excited by the promise of AI. I am. I do have my concerns. I'm not worried that it's going to take my job or it's going to take over the hospital and shoot laser beams at me. But I would like to find kind of the, the use case that drives value. I think we're already seeing some of these clinical use cases. I think radiologists, for example, are recognizing that a computer reading a, um, a radiograph is getting that much better each time. Mm. And at some point, they're both going to be able to automate those million x-rays and also flag the zebras. That is a little bit, the, I think, the promise of AI in that kind of data, data, data everywhere which is they will both look for the things that are most relevant. This person's in the ER. They have had a trauma. I am going to, I know that trauma and blood thinner are actionable items. In other words, I'm going to flag that at some point in this person's medical record, their last primary care visit a year ago, it was flagged that they needed to have a new INR. Right, they needed to have their blood thinner level checked. Um, that is actionable information in the ED. That before we do um, surgery with this patient, before we do a procedure, before we do a lumbar puncture, we actually want to know uh, if their blood is thin, did it needs to be reversed. So I think that type of thing, that sort of mass data being processed and then the nuggets being pulled out is a huge opportunity. I think sensitivity around, you know, um, this is the best clinical pathway for this person, then probably like everyone else, I throw the health equity card and say, what has this been trained on, mm. right? We have so many examples where medical clinical pathways have been trained on, quote, the wrong model. Uh, the example I always use when I was training um, in New York, about half to three quarters of my patient were African-American, and I was being trained on the same hypertension study everybody was, the all-hat trial, 50,000 plus people, and you start with hydrochlorothiazide, and then you go to um, uh, an ACE inhibitor, um, and if those don't work, then you can move on to. Well, even at that time, we were talking amongst ourselves that these do not 
primarily work on our black patients. And we almost always are wasting our time and reducing the opportunity to lower their hypertension because it turns out that huge trial, the model, the data set for which we are trained on didn't have many black participants. And as a result, ignored the fact that amlodipine and other antihypertensives were much better. So that's just one narrow example, but I think we are already seeing it with some of these data models that AI is trained on that they're not necessarily identifying the best thing for the patient in front of you. They're identifying it based on the data set that they were trained on. Um, You know, extraordinarily important point, that whole issue of the equitable inclusion, certainly in the origin data set. And, you know, it raises another point. We're not going to be able to get to it, but that data and those protocols, for want of another term, are exactly what's in use in the denial system and the insurance industry that says, no, no, you must do the following things because that's what we know works. And we're forcing this in other ways, not even in the clinical. So even if you're a smart physician that says, well, no, I know that that doesn't work because I've had all this experience, you don't even get an opportunity to do it. So, um, but, I, you know, put that to one side. I, I, I want to, in, in the uh, balance of what we've got left, um, just talk about something. And, you know, I'm not going to be political, but it, it, it originates political, which is, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and his known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Unknown. How do we get to that point of sure? I, I mean, I, there's never 100 percent surety. Let's be clear. But, you know, comfort, let's call it a confidence limit that says I can take what's surfaced up. Is this a, just a, a, a constantly incremental approach that says we'll eventually get there and at some point we'll get the check mark and say, is it FDA approval? I, I don't think so. But what, what is that point where we can have confidence in what's being surfaced and presented to us? We have this pre-existing research pathway in healthcare that essentially looks at medication, for example, and says, is this the next great medication? Now, careful what you wish for again, right? We've all seen how that pathway has been abused in the industry such that new medications come out that turn out to not be any better than the old medications. They just are more profitable, so they end up being pushed into the system. I think there's an opportunity to build a better but analogous model around technology. There's been a discussion with FDA about regulating algorithms I think that could be unnecessarily complicated, but knowing the great academic researchers across the country, I would love to turn them loose on looking at these algorithms, comparing them against conventional practice, seeing which is better, looking for the holes in the models, and ensuring that these things actually work. Back to the kind of incremental approach, this doesn't happen tomorrow. and. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with avoiding the unintended consequences by taking our time with this and not rushing forward. Again, people are okay with a chat GPT written essay. I think they're less comfortable with knowing that AI is coming up with their clinical plan that may or may not be reviewed by a, you know, oncologist for their cancer. We'll we'll get there. 
but I think we do need to take a careful approach, particularly in healthcare. Listen, everybody thinks their industry is special and a snowflake, but healthcare is different when it comes to applying technology. It's not just about keeping the lights on. This is about people's lives. And again, they may not realize this until they're in the emergency room themselves or until they have a sick loved one. But as soon as that happens, you start to approach healthcare and innovation and technology very differently. I think that's a good thing, but it does involve some amount of patience and careful proceedings versus a headlong, let's use AI for everything tomorrow. To to uh, quote from the life of Brian, you're you're all different. Yes, we're all different. Um, I, so I, I think a great summary of the sort of process and how we can get through this, you know, and obviously I'm a fan of the incremental approach, um, you know, finding the small steps and, um, you know, I, I'm with you. I think letting the researchers loose and opening this up, I don't think uh, shutting it down is the way that this genie is out the bottle. There's plenty of opportunity, but it's not entirely clear exactly how. And it brings me to the sort of closing point, which is it's not really artificial intelligence. It's augmented intelligence that still needs the application of the brilliant clinicians and physicians who bring the additional value. Unfortunately, as we do each and every week, we've run out of time. So just remains uh, for me to thank you uh, for joining me on the show. Um, ben, thanks for joining me. And thanks for having me. Super fun. Any opportunity to call someone a geek. I'll sell a geek, I'll take. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. 